Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So what are you supposed to do between each Engadget podcast? Wait in silence? I'm Matt Smith, and every morning I walk through the day's biggest tech stories. It's short, relevant, and ready for listening whenever you wake up. Find Engadget Morning Edition wherever you find your podcasts, or ask your smart speaker for the latest news from Engadget. What's up, Internet, and welcome back to the Engadget Podcast. I'm Senior Editor Devendra Hardwar. And I'm Sam Rutherford. Hello, Sam. Thank you for joining us. Sherlyn is out this week. Uh, she's a little bit sick, but we're kind of trading because I was out sick with the COVID last week. That was not fun. I'm recovering. My daughter's recovering, which is the most important thing. I'll be talking a bit about my experience, too, uh, in the middle of the show. So stay tuned for all of that. But you know what, folks? We're going to be talking about something that's incredibly important, which was last week's Supreme Court ruling, West Virginia versus EPA. And that ruling, which, uh, you know, Sherlyn mentioned a bit, we talked a bit about last week. Uh, we'll be diving deeper into it to see what it means, because it effectively cuts uh, the EPA's ability to... Uh, broadly regulate climate emissions uh, or emissions from power plants. So there's a lot going on. It's a little complicated, but I wanted to break it down. We're going to be having a great guest on to talk about that. So stay tuned. As always, if you're enjoying the Engadget podcast, please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Leave us a review on iTunes and uh, join us Thursday mornings, typically around 10 a.m. Eastern on our YouTube channel. We do a live stream where you can see our pretty faces and you can have some chats with us. We'll do some Q&A. Sometimes we'll show off gadgets. It's a really fun time. And if you have any questions, you can drop us a note at podcast at Engadget.com. Okay, this Supreme Court ruling, which kind of came down amid a very busy week last week, right? Because we they were coming in hot with all sorts of things, uh, knocking down Roe v. Wade, uh, basically making it uh, illegal for some states to have safe zones for guns, too. Like, uh, this conservative Supreme Court is really just like gunning for everything in many, many ways. But uh, this week, we want to focus on the EPA ruling because... It is, uh, it, it is kind of a wild thing. It's also a really confusing thing, too, because I've been following a lot of climate journalists and reporters who were really dreading this. There were murmurs that um, the Supreme Court was basically going to gut the EPA entirely and kill its ability to do any sort of, uh, you know, pollution prevention um, or help us get ready, you know, to deal with climate change. It turns out that's not actually what's happened, but it's still kind of a, a roadblock for us in terms of like making things better. So here's what happened. And it's, it's, it is a little confusing. So the Supreme Court effectively struck down the Obama era clean power plan for coal and gas uh, power plants, um, which was kind of a broad way to transition us away from using dirty fuel, away from using coal. It was meant to bring us to using natural gas in some plants and then eventually to renew renewables like on a broad level across the entire country. That is a really weird thing for the Supreme Court to even rule on because uh, they already stayed that plan in 2016. So it 
kind of wasn't going to happen. And the Trump administration also repealed it in 2019. And uh, I believe the Biden administration or the EPA like kind of fought back against that. But effectively, the Clean Power Plan was never actually going to happen. And the Supreme Court just ruled that, hey, that thing that you were never going to do, don't don't do it. Right. Um, Sam, I know you've been reading about this stuff. What was your first impression like once you heard this news? Um, I, I was really annoyed uh, because it seems like the Supreme Court is using a really silly kind of technicality uh, in order to be able to limit the power of the EPA. Because this whole like they don't want the EPA to be able to do big sweeping gestures. However, in like the the majority opinion, they were basically saying we're, we're saying this because Congress hasn't specifically given the EPA explicitly this power. So they're basically kicking it back to Congress. And this is kind of like a little bit of gamesmanship, it feels like, because you have this thing where it's like they know Congress is deadlocked and that there's a lot of just inactivity or or inability to pass statutes or laws in Congress. And so they're like, oh, if we knock it out on this technicality, they're not going to be able to change it because Congress is in such a jam. And and so it's like it's a really weird way to kind of flex the Supreme Court's power in or in order to overturn or, you know, dictate what the EPA can do. And you know what? The, this all sounds really complicated, but there are a few topics you guys should just know. And I think the main thing is the major questions ruling that Chief Justice Roberts brought up, which is basically that idea that you're talking about, Sam, that, the you know, the EPA as an agency cannot make system-wide change. They can't, like, make a, a judgment that will affect the entire country all at once. Uh, what they're saying is that um, they can do things individually to a specific power plant in a specific state, but they can't do anything broadly, which I think just undercuts any like broad plans to reduce emissions. Um, and yeah, any of those changes that w- if you do want a broad sweeping change, you got to bring that sucker to Congress and you have to have uh, everybody vote on it. And looking at how Congress looks right now, that it seems like that makes it impossible to do any major progressive movements. Um, another like... I think another thing that is uh, that's kind of interesting, like there is the Chevron defense, which is something that um, all the agencies have used before, which is what gave them the the kind of power to say, hey, the Supreme Court never explicitly said I could do this or that, but I'm the EPA. I should be ruling, you know, I have the experts. I should be kind of making moves when it comes to environmental protection. And they've basically used that ruling to say uh, – Okay, the Congress never specifically said this, but I'm going to do this because I'm the EPA. We, we we kind of know what we're doing here, and just because Congress never said we should do it, doesn't mean we can't do it. So it, it, there's a lot of language going on here. There's a lot of legalese, um, right? And, 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 it, and it, it kind of changes yeah. the default state of oh, we have these like uh, government bodies that oversee certain categories or sectors, and they were you know. That was the kind of default is that they get to do these things unless someone challenges them. And now we're kind of reversing that. It's like, oh, they can't act unless they have explicit permission. Which is kind of amazing. So what, what, what does this mean, right? What this means is that it kind of rules out methods that the EPA could use to help us reduce uh, greenhouse gases and reduce emissions. So things like cap and trade, things like saying like everybody, every power plant in the country just needs to start reducing, being more efficient. They can't like implement wide efficiency especially uh, like like multi-state-wide regulation Mm -hmm. exactly so the things that will actually make a difference and this is something we'll keep coming back to when we're talking about uh in the environment and regulations in general but um 
I, I was of the generation, you know, that was raised on recycling, you know, that that was told, like, you have the power to put put all these things in boxes. And because you do that, you can help to save the planet. And we are learning more and more. There's a lot of great reporting about this. And we've talked about it before that some recycling, especially plastic recycling, is c- a complete fantasy. And a lot of it was built up by, you know, the petroleum industry and industries actually creating these things to kind of put the onus on consumers to say, like, oh, you're a bad consumer if you're not doing this. But first of all, that stuff never actually gets recycled. And we also know at this point that individual choices, individual actions don't have as much of an effect on the overall environment, on the entire planet, as how, you know, BP or other companies decide to uh, gather fuel or burn fuel or anything. Right. So It's actually like a kind of twisted mindset because you're saying insane. like, yeah. you know, you're asking, you have big multinational companies like Coke or Pepsi, and they're like, oh, they're asking you, please recycle our plastic bottles. Well, okay, hold on. Why don't you not make plastic bottles? And like, you know, wh- what's going to be the bigger impact? Uh, you know, the average person recycling as many bottles as I can or not having to, you know, deal with the nightmare of plastic recycling, which, you know, as you said, has been shown to be largely ineffective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One thing I want to mention here, I think Justice Elena Kagan. Uh, so, you know, six of the justices supported this plan. The conservative justices, there were three dissenters. Kagan wrote the, the, the you know, dissent text. But she said, whatever else this court may know about, it does not have a clue about how to address climate change. And let's say the obvious. The stakes here are high. The court appoints itself instead of Congress or the expert agency, the decision maker on climate policy. I can't think of many things more frightening. That's the end of her quote. And that is kind of it. This is a weird thing where essentially the Supreme Court is the end all be all for making these judgments and not the not the scientists, not the experts at the EPA. And to me, that seems kind of worrying. Do you have any other thoughts on this, Sam? Because this means a lot, right? You you have a kid. We both have kids. And I, I think about, like, what what is the world we're leaving to them here? Like, what are you thinking? Yeah, yeah. I, I have a couple interesting, you know, kind of takeaways. Is that, like, as part of the decision, uh, the EPA is basically, like, they uh, – the Supreme Court said that, like, the EPA can monitor regulations on, like, a power plant by power plant basis, which is yeah. crazy to think that. They're going to have to do this individually for each power plant, you know, the thousands that are, exist across the country. And then uh, on top of that, you know – They've already said that like doing individual changes on a case-by-case basis is nowhere near as going to be effective as being able to make large changes in order to shift, oh, let's shift away from coal to more renewables, to more clean energy. And it's like, you know, just putting more filters on a smokestack is not going to cut it, especially after you do it one by one. It's all, it's not going to cut it. It's also going to be much more expensive than like a broader change across the entire industry. So Robin Samire over at The Atlantic has a really good uh, article called uh, This Ruling Will Make It Very Expensive. It's going to make fighting climate change is going to be very, very expensive thanks to this because there are a lot of like cheaper methods and more efficient methods that they could implement broadly that can't be done right now because it has to be done individually. Um, it, it's just wild. So it doesn't kill the EPA, but it's sort of like, you know, you, you can't really do your job. You have to do it the the. It's like using a toothbrush to clean an entire kitchen rather than you know uh, literally any other method. So something like that. Right, and, and the the other kind of quick thing is that like it kind of points even more to like the kind of breakdown of our checks and balances system because you know back in the day, uh, you know in the the nineteen eighties or whatever. Uh, if the Supreme Court made a decision or made an overturn that Congress didn't like, Congress would then pass a law, and then they, you know, there'd be that like back and forth. But 
more recently, the Supreme Court will over the decision and Congress won't do anything about it. And so it, it's like, you know, you have to have the whole idea is like you have these different branches of the government that are working together to, you know, do that push and pull in order to like, you know, refine our laws and statutes. And it now it just seems like, oh, something gets reversed and you, that topic just gets dropped entirely. And that is a very worrying thing because this, you know, this problem, climate change is obviously not going to go away. And so we, you know, it's, it's really disheartening to think that's like, oh, people are, it almost feels like people have given up in, in, a, in a way. In a certain sense. It, it, it has felt like, you know, we've seen the looming threat of, uh, you know, the global temperature rise. Uh, it, it seems like 2040 was a big deadline by the time where we should do a lot of things. And if the EPA can't effectively like main, manage or help uh, help reduce emissions broadly, it seems like we're, we're it just feels like it they'll never actually make it happen. Uh, another thing people are talking about here is just how kind of vague this whole thing is, um, because the major questions ruling brought up by Justice Roberts could affect other agencies, too. It means, like, um, literally anything else uh, that has experts uh, cannot act uh, effectively until Congress does. This certainly sets the precedence uh, for that. We don't know if that's going to be used. But there are a lot of deeper questions here. And, uh, you know, to help break some of that down, I want to talk with somebody who covers climate, you know, entirely, who is a bit of a climate and environmentalist expert. So uh, I chatted with Lisa Song at ProPublica. Uh, she's written a great piece around this, too. Uh, her piece is called The Supreme Court's EPA Decision Could Hamper Regulators' Ability to Protect the Public. Take a listen to my interview with Lisa Song. Lisa Song, thank you so much for joining us on the Engadget Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you, and certainly I've been following your work for a while, so it's an honor to chat with you, too, because I feel like you're doing real work, Lisa. You know, you're here writing about uh, how the world is changing. I'm writing about phones and gadgets, so thank you for what you're doing. How are you, like, I feel like I've talked to a lot of environmental reporters lately, and everybody feels a little bummed. How are you feeling about things right now after the CPA ruling and after, you know, everything, to be honest? Uh, not great. <laughs> I think I can speak for many other environmental reporters. We're just at this point where everything seems to be at a crisis point all the time. You know, the the, the climate, uh, environment in general, COVID, it ju it's just one crisis after another. It's, uh, yeah, I've been feeling that in the news. And then, yeah, my, my daughter and I got COVID too. So I was like, oh, great, another crisis. It's just <laughs> crisis after crisis. Uh, but let's talk about this, uh, the Supreme Court's EPA ruling in particular. Uh, we talked about uh, the major questions ruling that Chief Justice Roberts brought up. Can you discuss, like, can you clarify what exactly that is and the potential issues that opens up for us? Yeah, I mean, the major questions doctrine basically is saying that Whenever a federal agency wants to regulate something and do it in a way where the thing they're regulating is a major issue, something that has, you know, huge societal or economic consequences, then the major questions doctrine is saying you can't do that unless Congress has given you the explicit authority to do so. The problem, one of the problems here is that nobody knows exactly where the bar is. Uh, it, you know, it's hard to tell what is the exact criteria you need to meet in order to say this proposed regulation trips the major questions doctrine and this other thing you want to do doesn't. Gotcha. It's uh, I feel like, you know, we talked a little bit about this 
it does seem like it's really vague. Like what what are the longer term impacts of this, you think? Like does this affect how the APA decides? Does this like honestly, does it affect other agencies too? Like it seems like it could set back a lot of things. Yeah, I think that is one of the concerns is that it could create a chilling effect for not just the EPA, but for other federal agencies out there. Uh, If these agencies don't know what could trip this bar, then the next time they propose legislation, uh, sorry, the next time they propose regulation of any kind, they could be trying to be extra careful. They could be second guessing what they want to do. Or they could be just trying to do what they want to do anyway and hope that it doesn't uh, count as a major questions issue. It's just very unclear. And the experts I've talked to said it's something that no doubt every federal agency is trying to figure out and think and debate on their own. Yeah, I I want to point out everybody should check out your piece over at ProPublica. It was a good interview there. what does this you know all mean for the Chevron deference? Uh, that's something that I've been hearing a lot about as well. Like that was the way agencies were basically trying to interpret laws more freely if Congress wasn't explicit about what they were supposed to do. Uh, I guess this kind of means that's that's not as applicable anymore. Well, the experts I talked to basically talked about it like a default, uh, which is in the past if an agency wanted to do something and the direction from Congress was ambiguous, then by default, it was assumed the agency could do it as long as Congress hasn't said you cannot do X, Y, Z. So there was this assumption that the agencies, you know, they have the expertise, they have the ability to do uh, these general things. Now, the default has sort of been flipped on its head. And what this ruling could mean is that by default, you're not allowed to do something unless Congress has explicitly said you can do X, Y, Z. And so the end result is it definitely puts more power towards Congress and less towards the federal agencies in the executive branch. Gotcha. And that seems like that that is a fundamental change. It does seem weird that Congress, which is a group of people with lots of different concerns, has will have more power than like an agency made up of experts? Have we seen, you know, the EPA has tried to do things. It's tried to do some things to reduce emissions, but how much of a setback do you think this is for the EPA and for us in general when it comes to fighting climate change? I mean, it could have huge implications. I I think if you think about the idea that there seems to be this fundamental disconnect between what the majority on the court thinks in in terms of how Congress works versus the reality of how this particular Congress works. Um, What the ruling seems to say is, look, uh, Congress should have more power to decide exactly what federal agencies should do. And when it comes to the major problems of the day that affect our society, then our elected officials in Congress should debate and figure it out and pass legislation and give direction to these unelected folks in the federal agencies. Unfortunately, Congress is very deadlocked at this moment, and it's hard for them to pass legislation on anything, let alone something as sweeping as, you know, climate change or something, you know, anything in particular with a kind of more technical or scientific training or background needed 
it's virtually impossible to get anything done in Congress right yeah, now. It's so, a really utopian vision of how Congress is supposed to work. But do, do you have a, like, a, we're looking at this, like the, we have a conservative majority in the Supreme Court who's like basically doing as much as they can to like get their ideas or their positions through at this point. Uh, do, do you think they're doing this like with full, you know, with full awareness that nothing could get done in Congress right now? I have no idea. Uh, I, I can only say that the vision of Congress they seem to have is very far from the actual Congress that we see at this moment. Uh, and it, it's no, it, it's worth noting that in her dissent, just as Elena Kagan, one of the things she wrote was that it's especially important to defer to the expertise of federal agencies when it comes to technical and scientific issues. And climate change and environmental rules, of course, are very technical and scientific. And, you know, Congress does not have that expertise. Uh, they are not at all experts in science and climate change. Um, and one of the things she wrote in her dissent was, whatever else this court may know about, it does not have a clue about how to address climate change. It, it, it's rough out there. I mean, I, I was watching a lot of climate reporters too. Like uh, I remember people were anticipating this decision. I feel like some folks are saying it's not as bad as it could be, right? Because it's not completely killing the EPA's ability to, to, to deal with emissions or climate change, but it, it is like making it strategically tougher, right? Yes, I think that's a good summary. There, there had been some fear that the ruling could say the EPA has zero ability to regulate greenhouse gases, right? That that would have been a, an even worse outcome for 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 climate change. And you know, technically, if you just look at the very narrow wording of this ruling, all it's saying is that EPA cannot use one specific part of the Clean Air Act to regulate greenhouse gases from power plants in this one specific way. Uh, th that is a very narrow reading of the decision. Of course, it's more important to look at the bigger implications on things like major questions and how that has been worded. Gotcha. Gotcha. We talked about like how this ruling specifically focused on the clean power plan, um, but also clean power plan was not something that was ever actually going to happen. Right, the the Supreme Court already stayed that plan in 2016. I remember the Trump admin repealed it in 2019, even though that was like reversed. It, does it seem strange, like from the people you've talked to, that the Supreme Court is ruling on something that never was actually meant to be? It is definitely odd uh, because the clean power plan it has this very convoluted history by this point right it i believe the supreme court stayed the plan in 2016 and then the trump administration came to power got rid of the plan introduced their own their you know and it's just been this weird uh long complicated history and by this point the actual goals of the original clean power plan of reducing coal power generation down to a particular percent uh that has already been almost if not all achieved without the plan ever taking hmm. place okay. just just due to market forces uh of of just more companies going for natural gas as a power source or renewable power uh solar and wind as a power source so kind of those original goals have already been achieved so uh this ruling is actually about a proposed regulation that is in some ways irrelevant mm -hmm, at this mm -hmm, point. Mm -hmm. But 
the implications of this ruling are are going to have widespread implications. From from your perspective, it also seems like th- this ruling isn't actually a good thing for power plant owners either, right? Or people running coal power plants. It feels like it makes it harder for them to transition if they want into something else. I'm not sure about that. I think, again, just the market forces of, of coal. Coal is already in decline. Right. So I don't think this would make it harder for them to transition away from coal if they wanted to. But it does raise some questions about things like, uh, could the EPA require coal plants to install carbon capture technology, right? And and that is something that is very expensive. Um, and it's, it's an open question because um, forcing a power plant to install uh, a piece of equipment is the kind of very narrow traditional EPA ability that should not, you know, probably would not trip any lawsuits. Um, On the other hand, it is very expensive. So could it trip the major questions doctrine because it might be considered too controversial, too new, too weird, too sweeping? Um, Again, nobody knows. It's just one of those questions right now where we're going to have to wait and see. Yeah, it's really helpful to have some roadblocks as we're facing a ticking clock here. So that's great. Um, You guys at ProPublica have reported around, um, you know, how groups of Americans are regularly exposed to severe air pollution and, you know, the way companies are kind of making that happen, too. Does this ruling affect um, the ability to fix those areas or to make things better for those people? Probably not. So the part of the Clean Air Act that we had been reporting a lot on was about hazardous air pollutants, and there are certain toxic chemicals that uh, can can cause cancer. Um, the interesting thing is that part of the Clean Air Act was written in a very specific way by Congress, and it has a very long running list of you know here's what EPA can and needs to do on every single one of these 189 pollutants. And so because Congress has been so specific in what EPA needs to do, uh, co- uh, experts are saying that the agency's ability to regulate these pollutants should not be affected. Hmm. Okay. That's good to hear. That's that's something. Uh, I- I'm thinking of this too because uh, there is a playground right near my neighborhood, which is uh, basically attached to a small airport. And uh, I I feel like nobody's ever actually done, you know, the, the testing or the research there because uh, those small planes run on uh, leaded fuel, right? And the, their oh, kids right. playing right huh. on this playground. So it's like at some point, this is uh, maybe something we do in Gadget, but I want to like bring a group of people there to test it, test the surfaces in the air because uh, the air fuel is bad enough, but that's leaded stuff right on the playgrounds and people are living around that too. So Okay, more more fun things to deal with. Um, yeah, uh, how you know? Do you see a way forward for the EPA, Lisa? You know, given these limitations, like we have to do so much if we're going to change things as a country and reduce emissions to, I don't know how much warming we can actually prevent. But uh, what is the road forward for the EPA at this point for you? I think they just have to be more creative. Um, you know, there are again, there are still sort of more traditional air pollution uh, types of regulations they can they can do. Um, I'm a, it's a little less clear to me on climate change how to achieve because for climate change, we can't just do things incrementally. Right, right. We're at a point where we need really drastic slashing of emissions in really a sweeping way and I don't know how you 
get to those sweeping changes without potentially tripping this vague major questions issue. Um, I will be interested to see what the Biden administration does next. Um, there's there's a lot of things I'm sure that uh, they have been working on, and they may need to go back and maybe revise some of those strategies based on this. I, I would hope so, and hopefully for future administrations too. It feels like you know we are we are running a race, and there's just all these obstacles that keep getting thrown in our way. So I hope we can make it to the finish line. Lisa Song, thank you so much for chatting with us. Thank you. Where can people find your work online, by the way? My Twitter is Lisa L. Song, uh, uh, Lisa L-S-O-N-G. And then uh, you can find my work at ProPublica.org. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Let's move on to some other news and you know, there were a couple of things that were pretty interesting this week. And one thing that came in really late as we were planning this episode is a new lockdown mode that Apple has announced uh, that will secure iOS, iPad, macOS devices. Sam, you cover a lot of mobile these days. Can you help break this down for us? Yeah. Um, so lockdown mode is kind of like a new feature, and it's designed specifically for a very limited number of people. It's kind of protect their security in an extra really, you know, as the feature name implies, it's a really lockdown mode. So they're less vulnerable to being hacked or fished. And so, you know, it removes the ability to, you know, block certain FaceTime calls or invites unless it's like, you know, you know that, you know, this person is safe, you know, you know, this is a trusted contact. Um, and they also block certain like uh, JavaScript um, executables so that, you know, you can't just don't have rogue uh, scripts running on, you know, in Safari or on web pages. It, it really is like, who is this meant for? Why did Apple even go to the lengths to do to do this? And it really comes down to like the the wave of like cyber uh, attacks we've seen against like very very important people. Um, you, this, this are, are, of, are you worried about people stealing your board apes? I don't. I will never have board apes, but <laughs> you know th- things like that. You know, there. I'm I'm the sort of person. Every time I publish a review or something, or even after this episode, I'm sure uh, I start to see hits on my Facebook account, uh, like password reset hits and things like that. Like people are always trying to get into my accounts, but I I'm not even the type of person this uh, is talking about. I think this is more for like you know journalists who are doing actual work and dealing with sensitive data, or politicians who are doing uh, literally anything like statecraft work. Um, this is meant for those people to have an easy way. If you're going somewhere where you're not sure, um, a lot of advice, a lot of like OPSEC advice for if you have to visit China or if you have to visit Russia or something, um, people would say never take your personal devices, never take your actual business device, uh, go with a, you know, like a like a burner type of phone, uh, try to be as locked down as possible. This kind of would help those people if they have to go into environments that they don't fully control. Um, and yeah, in general, like, uh, I, I don't think the president of the United States needs this because he's already using, you know, a, a very secure device that's locked down so many other ways, but although it, that's kind of funny because yeah. it reminds me of, you know, remember back yeah. in the day when Obama had a Blackberry and he was yep. like, I don't want to give it up. And so they had to go through some special, like, you know, uh, tech security uh, registration to make sure that like his Blackberry was okay. So this is kind of like, not necessarily an evolution to that, but you see that like, you know, obviously for people, you know, people very attached to their phones and, like, they want to be able to use it even if they're in, like, you know, a more high-profile, exactly. you know, uh, exactly. droll or job. 
But I'm glad you brought up BlackBerry, Sam, because uh, kind of the thing that was key to BlackBerry as a former IT guy, uh, I, IT people loved BlackBerry because oh, yeah. it was a very secure platform. Uh, it was very easy to manage and control it. So, yeah, even though Obama was using his, that was actually certainly much better than uh, certain other people using an Android phone or something. Right, a very old um, Android yeah. phone that was like, I, was, I believe it was like lacking, uh, was out of security patches for a long time and was still being used. So. Just running a BlackBerry gave people like a certain level of security and that that never kind of because uh, Blackberries had to deal with enterprise data and a lot of secure data. So they had enterprise security built in um, iPhones, uh, not as much Android devices. Definitely not like Android devices are just like a free willing, you know, marketplace of insanity. Uh, so, yeah. Do you think this mode is a good idea for Apple? Do you, do you think this will help differentiate? I, Apple devices compared to Androids or something? I mean, Apple has been, like, you know, pushing the the privacy and security front uh, across all of their, you know, platforms and stuff. Um, so it, it kind of seems like a natural evolution. I'm just not so sure that it's going to be useful to most people on a day-to-day basis. It's one of those things that's it's nice to know that it's there. And, you know, you might even, like, be in a situation where it's like, oh, you dropped your, you know, your wallet, or you recently have been getting, like, a ton of spam or phishing emails, and it's like, Oh, something's weird. And maybe you lock your phone down temporarily so that, you know, you can contact your credit card company or something and, you know, make sure that everything's like safe. And so I I, I like that it's useful, but it's like it's one one of those like it's nice to have, but you don't really think about it until you need it in that specific situation. I hope it is something you can enable like remotely. Right. So if you leave your phone or I think even worse, like you leave your computer somewhere and you realize that yeah, the Find My app on iOS devices and Apple devices in general helps you do a lot of things. Um, but specifically, if you could just flip a button and be like, hey, just lock this down until I get it back or something, that would be super useful. Uh, you know who probably could have used uh, this uh, lockdown mode is the Axie Infinity developers. There was news uh, going around yesterday that I wrote up. Uh, Axie Infinity's hack, you know, that was a hack where um, uh, hackers stole $625 million from them from their Ethereum-linked uh, Ronin sidechain, all magic words over here, uh, <laughs> but that, one of the biggest uh, decentralized finance or DeFi hacks uh, that we've seen recently. It turns out, uh, according to the block, based on two sources, uh, they say they managed to infiltrate uh, Axie Infinity owner Sky Maven's network by sending a PDF to one employee with a potential job offer. They thought they were applying to a job through LinkedIn. They sent this PDF. The PDF had spyware built in. Once they opened it up, uh, it kind of exploded and started uh, exploring their network and looking for basically for the things that will help them control the Axie Infinity blockchain. So just kind of wild. If you have a lockdown device, um, you would not be able to run scripts from PDF. You know, you want you wouldn't be able to do certain things like that. Uh, a random little script like that wouldn't have access to the rest of your entire network. So that would certainly help. And uh, just talk about like a big boo boo. You know, like um, when I was working in IT, like right out of college, there there was a point where like my colleagues, like one of my colleagues, had opened an email that had like one of the major like uh, you know spywares that that hadn't hit our network yet. They opened it up. And they were like, oh, no. And then immediately the entire network was flooded. So right. it happens even among like security professionals. Um, and it's, it's very easy for it to still happen. I think what's really funny is that this hack is essentially it's social engineering, right? Like this, no matter what we're talking about, like NFTs or having, uh, you know, completely decentralized uh, things like the blockchain, social engineering 
is still like a major flaw. Humans are still a huge security flaw. And all it takes is to trick the right human, get your foot a little bit into the door, and you could just like wreak a tremendous amount of damage. Right. I mean, Uh, this this could happen to anyone. And like a lot of people, Mm -hmm. you know, we like to think that like, oh, I couldn't be fooled by like those weak, you know, obvious phishing attempts or scamming attempts. But like, you know, even in something like this, like if someone puts in the effort to like, you know, make a fake website for a company and create a, you know, a job offer PDF, it's like, you know, most people probably wouldn't think to like, oh, I've been talking to these people for, for a certain day. Like they, they seem to have some sort of credentials and then, you know, boom, this happens. It's like, you know, operational security is an important thing. And it's, you know, like you said, it's like, it's, it's easy to trick the meat bag. Um, that's like at the behind, behind the, the, the screen. Yeah. What's funny is that Axie Infinity is still, uh, they actually just recently, I think last week, spun back up the game. They're still using Ronin, but they have more methods to uh, to kind of make it easier. Uh, they said that they uh, increased the validator nodes, which is what helps you know people get access. Um, before there were nine, now they're going to be 11. They're talking about like getting up to 100. And uh, what's interesting is that the hackers, which by the way, the FBI, um, or the federal government, like, said it was Lazarus, which is a group from North Korea. So that's been like fully added. They gained access to five nodes, which gave them the ability to like fully get into that blockchain. Right. Um, so uh, one of the interesting things is like, you know, when when for, for a lot of blockchains, if you have like control of 50% of the network of the blockchain network, then you can do whatever you want. And so that, you know, like you said, if you have five out of nine nodes, that's a majority. And that's, you know, what when things get really dangerous and then you can start basically doing whatever you want with that blockchain. Just wild. Uh, I will. I don't think I'll ever play Axie Infinity, but the the storyline behind this, because this is what this is a play to pay, play to earn game where you could potentially earn money by playing it. Um, it is tied to crypto, like it is crypto driven. Uh, I think the story is uh, some places, like some people, especially in like uh, Southeast Asia, um, have been able to make a living playing this game and earning enough money to support themselves. Uh, I think the story now, uh, because of the crypto crash in general, the value of like Axies, uh, Axies as cratered, like, yeah, yeah, is like cratered entirely. So if you lose users, then also the value of the entire project kind of goes down. So. I don't. I don't know what's going to happen to Axie Infinity. I'm not a fan of these play to earn games, um, but I do wonder if there's a way to like make this work and not make it seem like you're just creating slave labor for these people out there. That that would not be great. The, the whole Axie Infinity is hard because it, it's kind of like a, a, a weak Pokemon clone, but because you are able to breed the Axies, like you can breed Pokemon, and then you can sell Axies for the crypto. You know, it is does allow people to you know earn money through the game, but you're really just you know it's kind of grinding it out. And I think for a lot of people, it's like you know they play games to have fun. Turning games into a job, especially in a way that's like not you're not competing for like to see who's the best. You're just you know kind of trying to produce as many axes or you know pokemon as you can it's it's kind of depressing to think about that moving on to something entirely different uh we did see news this week that uh toyota has run out of their federal ev tax credits which uh, this affects me because i'm always looking for uh an upgrade uh I, i've talked about like my whole car buying process here i recently bought the the chrysler pacifica hybrid which is a great plug-in hybrid minivan except uh, it was recalled, and now I can't charge it. And now it's uh, I'm still paying higher gas. Yeah, now prices. you just have a regular gas car. Gas now I van. just have a minivan, which yeah. uh, could potentially explode at some point. So thanks a lot, Chrysler. Um, what do you? First of all, what are your thoughts? Like uh, Sam, I I'd never thought about getting a car, especially while I was living in Brooklyn, until I had a kid, and then I was like, okay, 
car would be nice. It would be really nice to it's, just pick it's up. It's really go funny that you mentioned that because I'm yeah. I'm sort of in the same place. It's like, you know, I, I live, uh, you know, in the city. I don't own a car. But, you know, for like taking having to take a kid to doctor's appointments or like specialty stuff or like, you know, any any sort of health related stuff, um, you – you kind of need a car and in, in, I, I live in New Jersey and New Jersey, you have a, this weird law where you have to bring the kid home in a car seat because they don't even entertain the idea that, oh, I actually live close enough to the hospital. I could walk home in the same amount of time oh, it would really? take to drive huh. home. And I huh. wasn't, I was not allowed to just walk out of the hospital. We had that to take is, it. that is well. So in New York, like you do need to put them in a car seat, but I, I'd never heard the rule that you couldn't just walk home. That is why. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. and, and like, you know, maybe it was just like, you know, the, the hospital trying to play it really safe. But yeah, they were like, you have to take the kid out in a car seat. Um, you know, like a, a, like a regular stroller with a bassinet is like not OK. And it's like, well, you know, look, I'm trying to be urban. I'm trying to like, you know, yeah, I, yeah. part of the reason like I live in the cities because our public transportation is great. And, you know, it does, you know, wonders for the environment, you know, less, you know, really efficient in, on taking the subway versus driving a car. Um but I mean, so getting back to like, you know, the Toyota running out of the EV tax credits, it's just like it, it feels really kind of like a slap in the face to a lot of consumers because, you know, each car manufacturer has a certain allotment of discounted credits. And then once well, they let's sell. Talk about, yeah, let's talk about how this works. Yeah, go ahead, Sam. Yeah. yeah. And so once they sell a certain amount of cars, then their cars from that manufacturer is no longer eligible for a credit on your taxes. And it's just like so you're kind of disincentivizing car makers to sell a lot of cars it's weird. because it's then weird. the price goes up for the yeah. buyer yeah i see i see a comment here in our notes from ben saying like is, isn't this actually a good thing does it mean people are actually buying these cars and yeah sort of so here's what's happening the the federal government uh issued these tax credits i believe it's like up to seventy five hundred dollars if you buy an electric car um and that, those are your federal uh credits you also get uh, sam if you end up buying an ev in new jersey i believe you get extra credits um so i'm very jealous of that uh, but this is a way to help kind of like bring down the cost of EVs, uh, you know, and essentially it's the government kind of pushing people in that direction. Yes, there are criticisms of this plan because it mainly helps people who are affluent enough to buy a new EV. True. Yes, definitely. Um, there are also a limited number of these. So once a car maker runs out of that allotment, like Tesla has fully run out, I believe. Years um, ago. Yep. Years ago you will not be getting that credit when you buy one of these cars. So what what is interesting here is that, first of all, Toyota just launched their first like all-electric car, the BZ4X. It's getting like so-so reviews. These tax, these tax credits probably, uh, they definitely applied to the Prius Prime and the, uh, the RAV4 Prime, which were plug-in hybrids, so still have the hybrid, you know, drivetrain. They still run on gas, but you could plug them in for like 30 miles of electric driving. And you got like a fraction of a tax credit with that. So what is interesting is now uh, we have a lot more car makers. We have many more companies coming out with EVs. We've got um, like what? We've got VW. We've got pretty much every major brand. Hyundai has some. Kia has some coming. Kia just yeah announced the EV6 or has the EV6 out. One thing that has made a lot of this competitive for people is just thinking like, oh, yeah, I I will save a little money when I get one of these nice new cars. So kind of a downside for Toyota to run out of it entirely. Um, Also, I know car makers are also like wondering, like, should we just like increase these numbers? Like, should we just like uh, push the government to stop this limit or increase the limit a little bit so that more people can get EVs? I think there's good and bad to that. We're going to have a whole episode dedicated to this at some point. Um, But 
it's just interesting. Like Toyota has run out. It is a weird situation for Toyota to be in. The BZ4X is also a weird car because uh, from all the reviews I've read, like it's not it should be better. It, it should be better. Uh, there's a lot of like talk about how slow Toyota has been to adopt EVs in general because they were so committed to the hybrid drivetrain. So uh, another disappointment for Toyota, basically. Um, folks, if you are looking into buying an EV, first of all, send us your questions at podcastinggadget.com. I want to do a whole episode about this at some point. Um, but yeah, just uh, you, you may not want to look at the BZ4X. You may want to look at like all the other companies that yeah. do this if you want to save a little money. What do you think, it's Sam? I'm actually in the market for an EV because I know that like I, you know, I'm probably going to move out to the suburbs, like do that, you know, the, the typical <laughs> move in a couple years. Yeah. And like, you know, I know that I don't have a car right now, but I want my first car to be an EV because, you know, with gas prices and the way things are going, it just doesn't make sense. And so I've actually been like, I took a vacation uh, a couple weeks ago and I rented an EV for to see how it would do on a road trip. And because, like, I think that's one of the main things that I'll be a lot of concerns about is, like, you know, the range anxiety. And then, you know, to see the tax credits get taken away, it's just, like, it's killing a lot of the momentum that the EV movement has. It's uh, which, because Toyota is too popular. Right. I, I think that's the other thing. It's not that they're taken away. It's that Toyota is so freaking popular. People bought the Primes. And the RAV4 Prime was, like, last year was, like, the hot car to get. If you could get a RAV4 Prime... Uh, you were sitting pretty because uh, it was a beautiful car. I still I tested one for a week. I still have like dreams of like that shiny <laughs> red. It was like the shiny red and black. Was, like, yeah, oh, yeah. So beautiful. But Toyota is too popular. I, I think that's the main thing. Uh, will we see the government kind of like increase these tax credits or give us other incentives uh, for people to move over to EVs? Uh, will that be something that's limited now because of this EPA ruling? Who knows? We are we are like just kind of walking in the dark here. And, so and I think it depends a lot on like, you know, future political, you know, uh, elections and stuff like that, because, you know, I think like you said, a lot of the solutions like, oh, just ex- increase the number of, you know, uh, cars that are can get the tax credit or just, you know, increase the subsidies, because right now there is, you know, there is a price gap between EVs and uh, gas powered cars. And so there is, yeah. you'd like you'd like to see, you know, the government encourage people to support EVs and support clean uh, energy vehicles a little bit more. I see a good note here in the uh, for from Buddy three hundred five eleven in our chat room points out that the tax credit should just apply to individuals and not should just be an allotment of things. Absolutely, that sounds that sounds like true. a great great. Uh, that would solve it. That that would kind of solve it. Uh, let everybody you know get a get an EV at a decent tax credit. That would be nice. My thing is uh, when I was buying uh, when I moved to Georgia, needed to get a car. I didn't hadn't had one in ten years since I because because I was in Brooklyn. I really wanted a hybrid. EVs were too expensive, and I learned that you know use cars, use cars or where it's at. But the weirdness of the car market right now has made it all insane. Yeah, used cars are going more for new cars in some cases. Yeah. Used cars are going for more. Um, I talked about this on the show, but I was looking at, you know, the 2021 Sienna uh, minivan or the 2022, but even the 2021, which is hybrid by default, so they're all like hybrid cars, they were going for over $50,000 when those cars sold for $42,000 brand new. And I just couldn't, a part of me was just like, I can't, I can't justify that. I'm not going to pay for a car with 10 or 20,000 miles and pay more than what it was worth. Uh, But turns out everybody wants a CNN now. So I should have just jumped on one when I had the chance and not have a car that can explode. Thanks a lot, Chrysler. A couple of more quick stories. God of War Ragnarok. Sam, are you excited for God of War Ragnarok? It is officially coming on November 9th. I I mean, I appreciate the God of War franchise, but I have not 
kept up with that game. Have you? Did you didn't play the uh, the last one, which was like I I played a little bit better. of it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've been kind of out on a lot of the big AAA titles, but I do appreciate for the new God of War, they're keeping with the father and son theme. Yeah, which sure. I I think was like the real like you know a nice twist on that franchise because it really added a, a kind of another layer, not only a gameplay layer, but like a story layer where like you feel more connected to you know, Kratos' and his son's relationship on terms of, like, what that actually has impacted in terms of how you play the game and all that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it was also... I, I like the original God of War games, but uh, to a certain extent, they were they were great, like, big, uh, you know, flexes of machismo and, you know, fighting monsters and... Uh, it, it was there, always, there like, was a the, weird, like, yeah. super test, test, uh, testosterone-fueled like, version of, of Devil May game. Cry. And it was, like, I was, yeah. like, I was always a Devil May Cry guy. And so I was, like, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I don't, I don't want to deal with this Kratos guy. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Kratos, then, he's a fun character. But those games had, like, the sex minigame. Yeah, stuff, yeah. Which was weird. Uh, this one's, like, more mature. You know, it is, was it Neil Druckmann, I believe? Or it, it was, like, it, it is written more maturely. It's told, like... Sony's big, uh, big budget titles now. It is very much like Last of Us esque. So the story is mature. Uh, it is more like um, it's kind of open world. The last game, and also like the the bosses and the fighting is more like um, you know a Dark Souls type of thing. So huge bosses, really complicated fights. I think you'd enjoy it, and I'm looking forward to playing that on PC. Looking forward to playing this new one on November 9th. So that's nice to see. A quick story. What the hell is going on with minions? This is just a big is, question I have in general, but specifically my with, with the rise of Gru. Uh, Minions of the Rise of Gru, yeah. yes, has made box office records. It has, uh, uh, in its first weekend, made more than $125 million, which is, uh, which is a huge thing. I don't really follow the numbers. What I have been noticing is the memes and the people going going crazy. And uh, as you can see, yeah. If you if you tune into our video at some point, folks, you will see an amazing, amazing image. Um, what I have been noticing is that uh, the memes coming out of this from uh, from Gen Z and the youth are just kind of wild. There there is a TikTok trend oh, no. of dressing up in full suits and going to watch Minions: The Rise of Gru. And I don't understand any of them. Uh, I mean, I mean. And so basically, you know, I guess uh, the, the teens have really gone all in on this. And I'm not sure when Minions became this, like, c- cultural zeitgeist phenomenon. I, I think a lot of them did grow up with it. But, yeah, yeah. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. And, and so I guess, like, you know, we have all the uh, teen boys are dressing up in, like, full suits. I've heard even some, like, renting tuxedos to go watch the Minions movie in the theater. And then the teen girls are dressing up as the Minions. And then... Apparently, it's just like people going buck wild in the theaters. There's like mod. I've heard that there's moshing going on, and I don't understand why or when this all happened. <laughs> why or when? It, it is all for the meme. So I just want to say, like, uh, I, are the kids okay? I, I don't. Know. I don't know. Like, uh, I I fully support uh, going to the theater to support your pop culture of choice, right? Like, I was there for those midnight Lord of the Rings screenings, the midnight Star Wars prequel screenings, where people would dress up. And uh, if you want to have some real fun, if you've never seen it before, check out the Triumph the Insult uh, Insult Comic Dogs uh, tour of the Star Wars line. I think it was the Phantom Menace line. That's on Conan. Um, you should be able to find it on YouTube pretty easily. Classic stuff, like classic bits. Look at these nerds. They're being ridiculous. The difference there, I think, at least for those nerd properties, is that uh, people people like those things. Like you, People love Star Wars. People like Lord of the Rings. Like It was a thing people genuinely were passionate about. 
is that do you think that is the case for minions or is this just all like tiktok cloud like, honestly i I, I was yeah. i was so confused because i thought i thought it was just, i was it was all the big joke and to me it's yeah, almost yeah, like yeah. this is like morbius part two this but, is very but it actually has yeah. follow through and it's like the teens have commitment <laughs> in a way that like i have it still kind of boggles my mind because it's like yeah you know they like the morbius fans tricked sony into re-releasing morbius in theaters and that went morbius terribly. quote unquote fans yeah right it was it, it wasn't fans it was people online being like yeah sure uh, do it <laughs> yeah uh, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely go see it if you we'll put totally it back go in. it and yeah. then, but meanwhile, the team's like, no, we'll actually go see it and we'll dress up and we'll like, you know, turn That's this true. into like a big That's free true. publicity campaign for If anything, minions. it shows like the, the, the teens, the Gen Zers uh, will commit to the bit far harder yeah. than uh, apathetic millennials and uh, other folks. So, okay, congrats, congrats, Gen Zers. Um, I am terrified. I am certainly <laughs> terrified. And uh, there, there is all sorts of minion stuff happening uh, there. BuzzFeed did publish that minions uh, porn thing. Like, it is an erotic story about minions. It's exactly what you'd expect. So I think, uh, you know what? The world is on fire. Everything is falling apart. But at least we have minions. At least we have the rise of Gru. Let's move on to what we've been working on. And uh, I'm working on some things I can't quite talk about. I can't say I am starting to test out macOS Ventura, the next version of macOS uh, for a preview piece. We're expecting the public beta release to you know, launch sometime in July. So that's when everybody else can try it. I'm trying a developer beta right now. Uh, it's interesting. It still looks like how, how, how much can you talk about it? I, I mean, right now it doesn't, doesn't really matter. Like uh, I'm not showing screenshots or anything, but I can't say like stage manager is a really weird thing. Um, stage manager is their new like type of multitasking. It puts like little squares of windows on the side, which is confusing because the dock is still there. Right, because you still have um, the dock on on the bottom, and the stage manager is yeah. off to the left, and it's like, and it's almost like the kind of the Windows de- de- varies the different desktop spaces, but the implementation is a little different. But Macs also have different desktop spaces; they have yes, different virtual yes. desktops. So, it I will talk about this more in my preview whenever it gets written. I think Apple has always had trouble with multitasking and window management. And that is one thing that's always kept me on PCs. Uh, when I use Macs, I use it for work. I use it for a lot of different, you know, honestly, most of my writing is on Macs. Most of my gaming and like general desktop work is on PCs. So I always try to balance both, but I am always using expose. Uh, I'm always using those hot corners, which kind of like blow up uh, all the windows open or all the windows for a specific apl- application. That's how I've survived on Macs because the dock is not a great way to deal with tasks like window management. Um, Stage Manager is kind of getting there. Uh, it has its own like unique quirks because it like immediately centers every app. Um, so it's sort of like it's sort of like iPadifying macOS in a way that I don't quite like. But you can group apps together. So if I had like Slack and Evernote and another thing like all together, you could drag their windows together and make that a group of apps. And that is kind of interesting. And then it like will remember where you left those windows. But yeah, and I, I was going to say, this seems yeah. like it would be a more useful feature on the iPad Pro than necessarily it's Mac coming. OS. It's coming, right? Yep. It's coming to to the iPad. So that certainly it's going to be better there. I'm just, I want a new Mac OS, guys. Like, I don't know if we'll ever see a whole I don't, I'm new not sure. I'm not sure you're, we're actually going to get it. It's never going to happen because iPad OS, iOS is what is the future right, for that, Apple, right? Mac OS and iPad OS is slowly going to merge. And we, we've been seeing this happen for, you know, the last couple of years. And, you know, I guess we'll, we will eventually get a new Mac OS, but it'll be closer to, you know, yeah. iPad. Mac OS X, uh, as it was originally called, like launched in what, 2001? And the desktop still looks the same. Like it is just wild to me. You still get the dock, you still get the same basic desktop, 
it's over 20 years later and we have not fundamentally changed. So I don't know. A part of me is just like, really, I, I guess Apple thought they, they nailed it the first time and we we're just like, we're never going to change. <laughs> but since then, we've had Windows XP, we've had Windows Vista, Windows 7, Windows 8, Windows 10, and now we're at Windows 11. So Microsoft, at least, I, I, I do like appreciate the fact that Microsoft tried some different things, even though Windows Vista was terrible and Windows 8 was like a weird experiment. Um, also, I'm working on I'm working on recovering from COVID, as you could probably hear in my voice right now. It didn't hit me that hard. It was just kind of like a lingering cold. But I will say the hardest part was like uh, it was my daughter who got it from daycare and I had to take I took care of her. So that's how I got it. And we were like, OK, we're just going to isolate from my wife and my baby son, Alexander. So basically for over a week. I have not been able to like hang out with my wife and my baby. I have not been able to touch either of them. And that is, that is certainly rough. Um, so there is a lot of talk going on about there. Oh, but it's COVID's not going to be a big deal. If you're vaccinated or whatever, just, you know, take care of yourself. Sure. If you're living alone or if you're just with a partner or something and you both get it. Sure. Not bad. It is still annoying. Um, it, it is hard to deal with if you're isolating as a family. Um, so, yeah, just want to shout out there. Stay safe, people. Please wear your masks. Like, we are in the middle of another rise. And I don't think people are really considering those numbers. Like, the actual rate of infections is way up. People dying. The numbers of people dying are way up. And we're just, like, as a society, not paying attention to it. Yeah, we, we've slowly settled into annoying. this, like, uh, regime where, like, we're just living with it and we don't really think about it anymore. And we're like, no one's like most I think most people aren't doing that. Like you said, they're not checking the infection rates, you know, locally every day. And so we're just like, yes, it exists. Uh, You know, maybe I'll wear a mask or, you know, especially, you know, people who are set at risk, you know, they're probably a little bit more, um, you know, conscious about it. But it's like, yeah. And every week there's like some someone I know is like, oh, yeah, I got it, too. And it's like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and some people like they managed to go two years without getting it. And now it's like, oh, they're still it's still making its way. Got it. If uh, if my daughter's school was a little more careful, uh, if, she, if she honestly, if she would just wear a mask regularly, it's really hard to make a three year old do that all day. If I'm not there keeping it on her, um, like that's the main thing. Like maybe it'd be fine. Uh, I did talk to the school and they're like, hey, guys, don't worry. We're scrubbing every surface. We're deep cleaning the classroom. I did have to have a back and forth with the school being like, gah, it's been two years. You know, that's not helpful. You're not, it's not doing anything. This is a respite. This is something spread through the air. You got to clean the air. You got to fix the air. Um, I am just deeply frustrated by many things, including the Biden administration, which I think really pushed for, you know, pretending like, hey, let's get back to work. Let's everybody just act normal. Um, there is a human cost here. Luckily, my daughter and I, like my family, we got through it okay. But I know, like my somebody I know, had to go to the hospital, you know, because because of this particular strain, um, the isolation. Uh, we didn't get to go anywhere. Like I, I just stayed at home with my daughter, tried to do some work, but we couldn't go to the park. We couldn't really do anything. That sort of thing. Like if you're going to be responsible about it, which I don't know if people are going to be if they don't if they're trying to pretend it doesn't happen. Um, if you're being responsible, then that's also hard to deal with. So just stay safe, everybody. Um, you know, mask up when you can. Uh, I don't know if the boosters will actually help much anymore because they're based on the original virus. But get your boosters if you can. And I think there there is news that they may reformulate the boosters to uh, to work with the newer strains. So I think that could help a lot of people too. So just stay safe out there. Nothing is fixed. Like we're still in the middle of this. Be safe, people. What are you working on, Sam? Uh, so I just had a review go up, the Asus ROG Zephyrus Duo 16. 
um, which is a really interesting dual panel notebook. And so that's that review is live on yeah. the site now. So please go check that out. And then I'm going to be moving on to the Lenovo Yoga 9i, which is you know their flagship two-in-one. Usually a great, great system. Haven't had a chance to really test it out yet, but stay tuned for that. And Was this your first uh, duo? Your first ROG duo, Sam? Um, for for Engadget, I've used it before, yeah. but yeah, okay. this is like in and so and this is their kind of second generation. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. ScreenPad Plus, which you know, I, I really think Asus is kind of hitting a stride now. I think there's like a lot of like you know moving parts when it comes to dual screen laptops, and you know this thing is big. It's 16 inches. It's five five and a half pounds. It's pretty hefty as far as like you know um, a 16 inch laptop goes. But for me, I have a dual monitor set up on my desk at home, and like any time I'm traveling, it just feels weird. I'm, I feel like super constricted, and I just want that like a little bit of extra space so I can put Slack down on the bottom, and I can have one screen for whatever I'm working on. And so I really like it, and I really appreciate that Asus kind of takes a little bit of extra effort because they have these panels created specifically for their notebooks, which is something that a lot of other dual panel laptops don't do. They're just taking kind of generic panels um you know from suppliers and they're not customizing it to really enhance the the abilities the functionality of the system and asus is doing that and so that's one thing i do like that said the thing starts at twenty five hundred dollars and our (laughs) review unit was about four thousand dollars so yeah there's still a really big premium for the stuff like this but i i really like to see that you know these this kind of form factor, this design is evolving in a way that, oh, this was like a weird thing a couple years ago, but now it's like, oh, this is kind of good. Yeah, super expensive, but I kind of like it. It works. Yeah, it works. I, I think for like if you're a gamer with a budget, especially for like some pro gamers, like you get a nice big screen, you get a super powerful machine. Um, were you uh, I know you've been to Computex you know, many, many times, Sam. Like, did, have you seen I remember when like Intel and Dell had shown off some like prototype devices of like what dual screen machines could look like. And it's it's essentially this. And we saw that like three or four years ago. So it is nice to see like. You know, things are getting there. Asus is getting there. The hardware in general, you know, allows for desktop-like gaming on the go with a nice secondary screen. Cool. I'm glad it exists. Have you played with the uh, the 14-inchers? Because I feel like size-wise, that is more doable um, and still, like, you know, you could carry it around, but you still have the benefit of a nice screen. Yeah, I haven't used the latest generation of 14-inch dual, you know, dual-panel laptops. Um, I, I think, you know, there's some, some of them are still rolling out, but you're right. That's something, like, I definitely would want to check out because... You know, if you're trying to like really maximize portability, but still have a little bit extra screen space, I think that 14 inch um, form factor, like size wise, could be a really great option. And, you know, theoretically should be a little bit cheaper. Um, uh, yeah. And the other things like, oh, like you said, for gaming, I love having Discord on that second screen because I can see who's chatting. I can see who's writing in chat, but I also don't have to like alt tab out of my game to see what's going on. And so like, that's another just really great use of having a little bit of extra second screen that doesn't, and it like in other texts, this isn't like, you know, that razor project Fiona from like CES, like way back in the day where it's like, <laughs> yeah. you're unfold, you're like origami, like MacGyvering your laptop The thing setup. that was stolen too, right? Like I believe that one <laughs> yeah. was stolen. There was, yeah. yeah, there was a, two of them. I think they both got stolen and were never found. Amazing. You can never show that off with your rig. Um, are you, and you're working on a power brick guide too, right, Sam? Yes. Um, and so this is uh, something that I'm working on. It's been uh, uh, kind of a long time coming. And I think with a lot of the companies removing power bricks from the box, especially on the phone side, now people are like, it's kind of more important to like, hey, let me get a decent 
charging brick so that, hey, I can charge my phone fast, but also, hey, I can charge my laptop. And with like the proliferation of USB power delivery, it's like, oh, I can get like, I kind of care more about power bricks than I used to because I'm not getting the free ones in the box. And I really want like the max charging speeds to work with my device. And so I'm working on that. It's it's taking a long time to test just because... I, I owe you a computer. I need to send yeah, you one to you. No, yeah. and, and it's like... Well, the hard part is like the testing because uh, I'm, t- I'm, you know, starting like 10% battery life and I'm charging for an hour and seeing how long it takes to hit certain breakpoints. But once I have a like a device that's at 90% battery, I have to figure out how to spend all that energy so I can charge it up again. And on, you know, an iPhone or like, you know, modern phones, we're talking 16 hours of battery life. And so I can barely get one test run through a day. And so I got to make sure I'm like really on top of that. Um, so hopefully we'll get it out soon. But that's, yeah, that's basically what I'm working on. Very cool. Yeah, there are, first of all, there are the GAN chargers too, which uh, are really tiny and can do a lot of power. But I really like the, there's like the the combination ones where it's like, you know, just a nice little brick that can charge your phone, your computer, everything all at once. Like those things are really fantastic. Right. So, and you, you always see those people yeah. at like out at Starbucks who are like hogging the outlet and they have like four things plugged. It's like, you know, let's get like a nice multi-port, small, like you said, GAN power brick and you can power your phone and your laptop at the same time with decent speeds and like oh this is kind of the dream of like oh usb power delivery having one port that can do everything and it's like kind of coming together and so that's you know what i'm really trying to explore with that awesome cool looking forward to that let's move on to our pop culture picks what's uh what are you watching this week sam uh so i i need i need your help so uh-huh. i i there's Remember how, like, summertime used to feel like the dead time for shows? But now it's like everything's coming out. All the streaming shows all at once. Yeah, yeah it's it's yeah. nuts. And I'm like, I'm working my way through Stranger Things, but the my wife does not like scary stuff, so we can watch, like, one episode of that a week. My and one so, recommendation would be uh, pause Stranger Things. Yeah. It's not, it's not worth it. It's I might, not worth yeah, it. You've got so many to. other better things to watch. Yeah. Um, and so right now I'm trying to decide between The Boys, uh, Umbrella Academy, The Bear, and The Old Man. And if you have any any uh, recommendations on which order I should go through those first, yeah. uh, I'm happy to hear it. I would say it depends on your mood because I have not I have not seen the new season of The Boys yet, and I kind of fell off on Umbrella Academy. Just it just, it felt like weakly written compared to a lot of superhero stuff. I can see that. Yeah, I I will say The Bear is goddamn incredible. It is one of the best things I've seen in years. It is like. It is super anxiety-inducing. It is very much like Uncut Gems. But uh, The Bear is a show uh, set in Chicago about a, a star chef who goes to run his family's a sandwich shop. And it is just like very, very hardcore, like behind-the-scenes behind, behind the stuff, uh, like in a kitchen. Incredible show. So I think it's it's really well done, but it's also a show that will like leave you on edge. So I kind of binged it all with my wife in a couple of days before I got COVID. Um I would say start that. And if you can take it, like, just go for it. That's the kind of push I need. Um, so good. It's yeah, it's like, and, you know, I love all cooking content. and But, like, you know, recently, like, my cooking shows have been a little bit skewed too heavily towards reality TV. So it's nice to have something that feels, like, more put together, more produced. It's actually written. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is a dramatic story that's actually been put Th- together. That said, also, I, have, I, was, yeah. I, have, I have one uh, nitpick is that I, I can't stand this, like, in cooking culture where it's like everyone addresses the the chefs like they they say chef as like an honorific but like anytime you talk to someone and it's like can you imagine how weird it be like if i said hey r- reporter or or editor every time i like tried to i, like, I, I kind of like it 
Writer, writer, you. It just, it just it feels weird. Uh, I don't know why this is a thing in the cooking mm-hmm. world, but okay, sure. The cooking world is weird. And yeah, yes. I, I used to watch a lot of Bourdain stuff. Uh, so I think that's like my introduction to it. It is very much, it's, it's militaristic in a way too. And I think that is where a lot of that stuff comes down because essentially these things are like a battle, like just getting, getting everything prepared, getting everything cooked and organizing it is the main thing. And, you know, for a fast moving kitchen, that is uh, very similar to like (laughs) uh, organizing a military attack or something. Um, Anyway, the bear is fantastic. Uh, I would recommend everybody check it out. It's on Hulu right now. Among those other shows, like I'm looking forward to seeing the boys. Um, I probably don't think I'll see the new umbrella Academy, Uh, but the old man is also on Hulu. And if you like, uh, if you like your old man action shows, that one is what Jeff Bridges, right? Yes, and so that's that's well, yeah. like, you know, Jeff Bridges is good in pretty much everything. It's good. So that's I was like, you know, what, I'll just go based on him. I, I like trust his abilities, and probably I'll probably check it out. But move it. And down John Lithgow is in it too. It is if you like that sort of like dad action show, uh, sort of like Jeff Bridges taken. Right. It is kind I was just of say like it's that. T- taken yeah. the show, but a little bit more and but it's not quite as like fantastical as some of the like especially more the more recent ones like uh nobody or like a yeah. john wick type thing it's like very grounded mm-hmm. but also um yeah I, I think it's really well done so check that out that's the old man uh anything else you want to mention sam uh and, and in terms of gaming uh I, you might have seen in the in the review video but i i've been playing a lot of te- uh teenage mutant ninja turtles shredder's revenge oh I, yeah 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 I love Turtles in Time back on the SNES days. Like uh-huh. that was like my jam, and like I was, game, I was like yeah. a little worried. It's like, it, it, have I outgrown this genre? Mm-hmm. And I was like booting up. It's like, no, this is like fantastic. <laughs> it, it like brought back all those like great memories of just like you know old school side scrolling beat 'em ups. And I, I've been having such a blast playing that game. Um, so yeah, highly recommend. And it's like mm-hmm. relatively cheap compared to like your standard AAA games too. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, I'm looking forward to checking this out. Also, this game made me realize, like, I'm a grown up. I have space. <laughs> I can I can get an arcade cabinet. Oh, maybe I should. That's it's that's me always a dream. Business cat. Yeah. But, that, but that's, that's cat such going, an investment, mm. though, because it's like it's a physical space thing and you got to have the room for it. It's but. vertical. You yeah. know, like the floor space actually isn't that much. It's the vertical thing. But, you know, arcade cabinet where you could put in all sorts of games. I also know Walmart and other places like sell the ones with self-contained games. But, you know, we, we want a little would, freedom would you, would, would you ever get like a cocktail style machine? Like the, the old sit-down Pac-Man ones? No, I, I've never liked those. Okay. It's like the ones that basically I loved as a kid, like the fighting machines or like the Simpsons arcade game or something. Yep. Or oh, the, 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 the four-player, the, the like the double-wide. Yes. Those are... Yes. 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 Beautiful. Either the four player or just like a nice two player version of that. But yeah, give me the thing I could never really have as a kid was being able to play as much arcade Street Fighter as I wanted. It's like or finish the Simpsons game or yeah. finish the X Men game. Or right. I, I don't think things. I've like, ever yeah. finished the Simpsons game in an arcade. Like you have to like pump coins and just cheat your way to get get through so, to the end. I would love to do that. And also like I, I've got a little player too you know getting ready to play some games. So I'd love to like put her in there and like we could have an arcade cabinet thing. So that's my dream. We shall see how that goes, folks. Uh, but yeah, if you're into arcade stuff, let me know because I, I know like a lot of folks are following this. I'll move on to some of my stuff. Uh, first of all, yeah, the bear, fantastic. Uh, check it out. Also, Toucan Birdie, the show. Uh, this was from uh, one of the BoJack Horseman workers, Lisa Hanawalt. Uh, she started this on Netflix. It was canceled by Netflix. It got revived, I believe, on Cartoon Network. I believe on Adult Swim, um, but anyway, now it's back on HBO Max, and you can only only watch 
season two on HBO Max. So this is the weird licensing world we're in right now. But yeah, it's about two friends, uh, two two bird friends. They live in a bird town, and it, it, it continues what made season one great. Um, you know, they're two like thirty something bird women who live in the same apartment building are just dealing with life and it is a great show i think it's really well written the friendship is so hardcore like is just well done feels really mature uh, but also it's really funny it's visually inventive it's a world where like plants can also be people and they're just you know plants walking around and talking too so there there is no like rationality to it sometimes but i do kind of love it it is a very very sweet show so took a birdie s2 check it out it, that honestly i was watching that like every night as i i was trying to go to sleep and i was going to sleep a lot during uh while having COVID. <laughs> recovering so, covid yeah recovering a- anything so, to stay entertained yeah. and not focus on the sickness exactly uh on the opposite end of the spectrum if i <laughs> If I wanted to just embrace the apocalypse that I feel like we're all running towards, um, I would recommend Mad God by Phil Tippett. So this and is very much a vibe pick right now, huh? This is a vibe pick and no dialogue, no dialogue. It's just like it is – Phil Tippett is a guy uh, – he is a special effects master. He's the guy behind the dinosaur puppets in Jurassic Park. He's behind like so many of the things you've loved and seen in movies. This uh, Mad God is like a 10-year project. It is a stop-motion slash live-action hybrid about an assassin who um, dives into the underworld uh, on a mission – and uh, there is no dialogue here. It is just purely scene to scene of, uh, you know, uh, motion. what do you call it? Uh, stop motion beauty. It is one of the most beautiful things I've seen. Also, one of the most ugly things I've seen. Because I, I was like going to say, like, this, this style yeah. is very, like, you it know. It is hardcore. Yeah. So I, I will say, like, I, <laughs> this is something you watch and your skin kind of crawls. I found something, like, weirdly hopeful about it, too. But... You know this. Uh, this movie goes places. It is. It is a uh, very much an artistic experiment. It is not for everybody. But if you like interesting animation, uh, if you just kind of want to embrace the end of the world, which is kind of a vibe I'm feeling at the same time while also balancing Tuke and Birdie, um, check this out. It's on Shutter right now. It is a beautiful work of art. Um, just feel free to you know make sure to take a shower after or something because you'll feel dirty watching it. That's it for our show this week, folks. Uh, our theme music is by game composer Dale North. Our outro music is by our very own managing editor, Terrence O'Brien. The podcast is produced by Ben Elman. You can find Sam online at... At Sam Rutherford on Twitter. Yes, definitely follow Sam. You can find me online at, at Devendra. I talk about movies and TV at the Filmcast at thefilmcast.com. Email us at podcastandgadget.com. Leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe on anything that gets podcasts. We're out, folks. <laughs>